Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. On this Tuesday night, it had a 24-foot wingspan and weighed nearly 2,000 pounds. Pelagornis cindersi graced the skies for billions of years and then went extinct. We find out what could have happened to the biggest bird this planet has ever known. A big shock in the golf world today as bitter rivals, the PGA and Saudi-backed Live Golf, not only ended all hostilities, but announced a union. It may mean better golf and getting out of an expensive battle for both, but at what cost for the game? We speak to a former inmate turned prisoner advocate about the decision to transfer serial rapist and murderer Paul Bernardo from a maximum security prison in Ontario to a medium security one in Quebec. The decision has sparked outrage, but how did it happen and can it be reversed? But first, will it or won't it? All eyes will be on the Bank of Canada on Wednesday to see if it moves ahead with another interest rate hike ending a months-long pause or if it holds rates for now in the face of a strong economy and still high inflation. Well, the Bank of Canada has, uh, well, just two choices on its menu tomorrow. Raise interest rates now or wait or don't for the time being. Uh, It could be bad news, of course, for anyone with a mortgage. And the speculation is growing uh, that the central bank is getting ready to raise those lending rates again. After saying that it would pause things back in January, after all those hikes that we saw last year, as the central bank was trying to tame inflation through these successive rises, rising from about 0.25% to about 4.5% in about eight and a half, about eight, nine months. Uh, there was a pause. They figured, you know, we're going to wait and have a look, see what happens to all this. Well, the economy, you know what? It's still doing well. Everything is still pretty hot. Inflation is still pretty high. And now it could be that that pause is coming to a brief end. A financial analyst, Robert Levy, spoke to Global News this morning. Now the pressure's on for them to potentially raise interest rates again. You know, a couple of weeks ago, they had the benefit of time to see how the economy was was playing out. But now with this recent GDP report that came out Wednesday, the big thing is that the Canadian economy isn't slowing down and even performed a little above expectations in the first quarter. So what may happen tomorrow? Jean-Paul Lamb is a professor at the University of Waterloo's Department of Economics. He's a former assistant chief economist and principal researcher at the Bank of Canada. He'll take us behind the walls uh, down on Wellington Street in Ottawa tonight. Jean-Paul, thanks for your time. Welcome back. Thank you for having me. How are you, Ben? I'm well. I'm well. Well, here we are again talking about rate hikes. Uh, we, you know, we knew the pause. I mean, a pause is just that, right? But uh, tell me, what, what, what do you think is going on behind the scenes uh, at the Bank of Canada these days as they're looking out at the economy and, uh, and inflation and wondering what to do about it? I think the job is very difficult right now. As you know, in March and April, they did not change interest rate and they announced that they were going to continue to assess whether the tightening in monetary policy was sufficiently restrictive to relieve price pressures. And if the economic developments unfold as they projected in the monetary policy report, then we would continue to pause the interest rate. Um, unfortunately for them, the data that we've received over the last couple of months has been on the strong side, meaning that the economy has done better than expected. Growth in GDP growth in the first quarter of 2023 was 3.1%, stronger than the 25 that we were projecting. 
But more importantly is the labor market. I think that's where the worry for the Bank of Canada is. Job gains in Canada, as you know, have been surprisingly strong in recent months, despite, as you mentioned, 4.25% increase in interest rates since January 2022. And the labor market remains extremely tight. The unemployment rate has been at 5%, almost record low for a lot of months right now. Job vacancies have come, although they've come down, but they remain extremely high, meaning that businesses are still looking for people to work. And employment growth in recent months have been much stronger than expected. So this tight labor market, what it's doing, it's putting a lot of pressure on on wages to increase and and for firms to meet, um, they are unable to find people to employ to meet consumer demand. And if wage growth, which are currently around 4 to 5%, continue to outpace labor productivity that hasn't been very good in Canada, then it makes it hard for the Bank of Canada to get inflation back to 2% because higher wages are going to feed in higher prices. And if businesses can't find more people to employ, then these tight labor markets are going to continue even higher, continue to fuel even higher wages. So the Bank of Canada is looking at all of that, plus inflation in recent months have eased, but not to the extent that they expected. It means that their decision tomorrow is going to be very difficult, whether they continue to to pause and wait for one more cycle of data before deciding whether this pause was warranted, or they look forward and say that, oh, probably the economy is too hot for now, so they need to increase rates. My guess is, as they want to be forward-looking, they want to forefront inflation and prevent inflation expectations of getting out of hand, they will probably err on the uh, cautionary side and increase rates by 25 basis points tomorrow. Right. Which, of course, a lot of people, you know, there was talk. I remember back in the winter at, at one point that because of uh, problems with the banking industry and so on, that maybe, maybe, just maybe rates would start to drop a little bit. And, of course, anyone with a mortgage these days is watching all of this very closely, although I gather a lot of it's already been priced into mortgage rates. Uh, but clearly, the Bank of Canada must be looking at the impact that these increases are having on borrowers, of which all of us are, and thinking we have to watch out because there, there's noise coming from the other side as well, that, that already people are struggling a bit under these, under these current rates. Exactly. I think uh, they, in light of these much higher borrowing costs since 2022, the bank has been very concerned uh, since last year about the ability of households to service their debt. So just to give you a number on, on a half a million dollar mortgage, which is more or less the typical mortgage balance that Canadians hold on their, on their, uh, on their mortgage, um, the amount that they now have to come up with, the extra amount that they now have to come up with to service that debt since the increases in interest rate is about $1,000. And as you know, a lot of people in, in Canada who hold mortgages have fixed rates. So a lot of Canadians have not been affected by the increases in interest rate. But a lot of these mortgages are coming up for renewal. So people who had mortgages at 2% or even 3% a couple of years ago, have now to renew at 5 5.5%. 5 
So definitely the bank is looking at all of that, and they know that more households will uh, face financial pressure in the coming months, in the coming years, as their mortgages are renewed. And on top of that, the decline in housing prices have also reduced uh, homeowners' equity. So looking at all of that, there might be some signs of financial stress, particularly for households that are heavily indebted. They have to decide how to balance the economy, whether they should forefront inflation and not let inflation get out of hand. But at the same time, they understand that they cannot increase interest rate too fast because this would put in danger uh, many households that are heavily indebted. Uh, So, Jean-Paul, for all of us who aren't economists, it feels like a tough time to figure out what's going on because uh, job numbers are good. The economy seems like it's running strong. Everyone feels like they have less money and the cost of borrowing goes up while the value of your home is going down. So it's all this strange for non-economists. It feels like a very strange time to be trying to survey exactly what's going on. It is, and it's not just for non-economists. I think it is for economists as well. The data has been very, very hard to read, actually, and this is why I think the the Bank of Canada is going to have a hard time tomorrow deciding whether to pause or to increase interest rate. Uh, The signals we're getting from the the economy has been mixed recently. I think what is certain is that the path to get inflation back to 2% will take a lot of time. Now, whether we need to increase interest rate further to get inflation down to 2%, that is the million-dollar question that the Bank of Canada needs to answer tomorrow and in the coming months. Right, because if it doesn't happen tomorrow, the prediction is, I mean, I think, I think it was about 40% of those thought an interest rate, rate, rate hike will come tomorrow, and everyone, almost everyone else thinks it'll happen in July if it doesn't happen tomorrow. Yes, I think uh, at the end of the day, the, the data is coming out a bit stronger than the bank expected. Uh, a few weeks ago, even a couple of months ago, they were predict- predicting that inflation would be around 3% by June. Uh, inflation is is a bit higher than that. It came to uh, around 4.3% 4, 4. in April. So inflation is running definitely hotter than what they expected. I think what is even more worrisome for them is that uh, the other measures of inflation, what we call core inflation, and these measures, basically what they do, they strip away volatile components of the CPI, and we look at trend inflation, so where inflation would be going in the next couple of of months. So these measures of inflation remain stubbornly high, uh, much higher than what the bank wants. They remain in the region between 5 and 5.5%. And also inflation expectations, especially near-term expectations, remain extremely high for their liking. And that's not good because we know that if Canadians expect prices to increase in the next couple of months, then that will feed in actual inflation because they're not going to wait around to buy the new car, which they know will increase by maybe 5 10% in the next couple of months. They will go and buy it now, and that fuels actual inf- inflation, when, and we get much higher inflation. So for the bank, I think it is clear that the data now is a bit stronger than in their baseline forecast compared to March, April. So whether they increase rates now or further, 
in a couple of months or next in, Ju- in July, it's a matter of whether they think they should be ahead of inflation and they would, should be more forward-looking now or wait until they get some more data and decide in July. Right, because consumer spending was up too. That was the other latest number that we saw. It's not like consumers are putting their wallets away. In fact, if anything, we're spending more. And you mentioned one of the re- one of the reasons why that is, right? Anticipating that prices will just be going up a bit more. Yes, consumer. I think that's a big surprise for many many economists, uh, and that's happening in the U.S. as well. We thought with the massive increases in interest rate that consumption would start to slow down. And that hasn't been the case. I think it has to do also with the fact that we did not spend too much on services during the pandemic. And this is where most of inflation is and the persistent inflation is. It's in the services price sector. So we are seeing consumers continuing to spend, especially on on big ticket items. And there is also this anticipation, as you mentioned, that if I think that my fridge is going to increase by a couple of hundreds of dollars in the next couple of months and I have the money, I might as well buy it now and that fuels inflation. Well, Jean-Paul Lam, we'll all be uh, watching the Bank of Canada tomorrow morning. Thank you so much, as always. You're welcome. We'll talk about Paul Bernardo now, because I think this one has caught a lot of people off guard. He, of course, one of the most notorious uh, serial killers in Canadian history. And news emerges last week, early, late last week, this happened early last week, uh, that he'd been transferred uh, from a maximum security prison in Kingston called the Millhaven Institution to a medium security prison uh, in Quebec near Mont Tremblant. Now, why it happened, we don't know. Because, of course, the Correctional Service of Canada hasn't said. They will say, though, now under a whole lot of pressure that they're going to review why this transfer happened, at least according to Public Safety Minister Marco Mendocino, who's been under fire about this today. Um, of course, Bernardo, if you're not entirely familiar with this story, uh, is uh, serving a life sentence for the kidnapping and torture and murder of 15-year-old Kristen, Kristen French in, in 1991 and 14-year-old Leslie Mahaffey in 1992. He was also convicted of manslaughter in the 1990 death of Tammy Homolka, the younger sister of his former wife, Carla Homolka, um, who was 15 at the time. And he also pleaded, um, he was also convicted of sexually assaulting 14 other women. He was known as the Scarborough Rapist at the time. So this is someone who was, if there was a lock away, you know, lock them up and throw away the key sentiment for anyone, this was certainly one of those people. Uh, But again, quietly moved to a medium security prison in Quebec early last week. The lawyer for the uh, French and Mahaffey families, Tim Danson, had this to say. Yes, he's been transferred from Melhaven to a, a, a medium uh, penitentiary in uh, Quebec. When you are declared a dangerous offender and um, separately convicted and sentenced to life uh, for double murders, you know there's a punishment factor here. And part of that punishment factor is that you're subject to the rules and regulations of a maximum uh, uh, penitentiary. That was Tim Danson, a lawyer representing the families of Kirsten French and Leslie Mahaffey. Pierre Poliev weighed in on this today. He wants the federal, he said this today about to what he would like to see happen with uh, or have the Liberal government do at least in this situation. I'm calling on the Prime Minister to direct his public safety minister to say that all mass murderers should have to serve their entire sentences in maximum security prisons. This is a no-brainer. And the Prime Minister can do it. He's got to stop passing the buck. 
Pierre Poliev there today. And of course, Doug Ford, this all happened in Ontario. Uh, Doug Ford today uh, spoke about this in the legislature in Ontario. He wants the Correctional Service of Canada head to be fired over this decision. And uh, again, he says Bernardo should rot in maximum security. When we sentence someone to life sentences, that means a life sentence in the jail Maximum security, 23 hours a day. Matter of fact, I'd go one step further. That one hour he's out, he should be in general population. Well, Doug Ford not mincing his words there. Again, the Correctional Service hasn't said what prompted the transfer. Joining me now is Lee Chappelle. He's a former inmate and founder and president of Canadian Prison Consulting Incorporated. Uh, Lee, thanks so much for your time on this one tonight. Yeah, thank you, Ben. Uh, Good evening, sir. This has been, I mean, I, I just, I suppose, for listeners to understand the kind of work you do, this is a very particular situation. Um, but just the kind of work, kind of the kind of work you do, and also, I mean, you, you know these, you know Millhaven, uh, you've been there, you spent, you've served time there. I have, yeah. So the work I do, I typically work with uh, first-time offenders who, more often than not, are on bail, and um, generally later in life, it's something that came up that was uh, something got away from them in their lives but uh, certainly um, I, I do work with people I advocate with people I still have a tough on crime uh, somewhat of approach and I'm a firm believer in ownership and accountability uh, remorse insight and I demand that from the people I work with uh, my goal is not only to see them through a sentence but to never come back to prison um, ever again and to address what brought them to the point where they found themselves uh, facing court and incarceration. And you, again, speak, come to this from, a, from, from experience, from life experience. Uh, yeah, spent I served time in many a, days, yeah. correct. I served a 20-year, 11-month aggregate sentence for property uh, offenses from the time I was 18 till 40, basically. I was a young uh, person who brought up in the Children's Aid Society and foster care group homes and ended up as a drug addict and a thief and uh, I finally fortunately woke up uh, in my 30s and began taking university and realized that uh, I had uh, really undershot (laughs) what I was looking to do in life. Right. Tell me a bit about your reaction to this decision because of course there's been a lot of outrage about it but what was your initial reaction because I don't think any of us ever who'd ever covered in this case at all ever expected him to be moved to to be moved period really i did not see this coming either um some of the comments i just listened to at the front end are, are unsettling to me when it comes to every murderer and the approach of some of the uh, politicians that did reflect on that um taking the scope well beyond paul bernardo but um nonetheless <laughs> uh and 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 what I find, having done this, I've spoken with the Senate, I've spoken with MPs, I've done a number of, uh, I'm a roundtable uh, stakeholder uh, participant when it comes to federal corrections. And I, I, I think one of my frustrations when it comes to at least the politicians with this is, is how undereducated they are on our system to begin with. Um, but when it comes to Paul Bernardo, my God, um, a serial rapist, who progressed to killing his victims, and I, in in my view, I think there should be a provision in our criminal code if if for anyone who is a serial rapist um, to get a life sentence without the, the need of murdering someone. I just think that uh, 
what Paul Bernardo did are the acts of a monster. And um, with the work I do, I look at mitigating factors and what led people to, I don't know, commit the fraud or uh, whatever it is they did that I'm working with them. But, but this, I see mitigating factors need not apply. Uh, anyone who takes it to the extreme of dehumanizing people the way Paul Bernardo has or did, uh, in my view, is broken and not fixable. <laughs> now, one thing I will point out, he served 29 years uh, on a life sentence. Mm-hmm. And under our legislation, which is really kind of... Um, the Correction Conditional Release Act and the uh, Correction Conditional Rules and Regulations, the principle for sentencing and for classification uh, directs that the Correctional Service of Canada use the least restrictive measures consistent with the protection of the public, staff members, and offenders, as it's written. Um, And... Typically, a lifer, somebody who's in serving a life sentence, would be in a medium security within 10 to 15 years post-conviction. Um, but most of those would be working their way out and down in, in um, security levels. And I think right. we're at a per diem or an average of about 22 years spent inside for lifers in Canada at this point. So he's, Paul, he's clearly... Yeah, owned, absolutely. Sorry, go ahead, Ben. Yeah, I hate to say he's beyond all those. I mean, he's been de- declared a dangerous offender. So, you know, he has a tried, he sort of appeared before parole boards twice, I believe. But what would, I mean, tell me a bit about the difference between, because there's a lot's been made about someone like Paul Bernardo should spend their right. entire sentence, regardless of how long it is, in a maximum security prison. How much of a difference is there between being at Millhaven and being at a place like La Macaza where he finds himself now? Well, that's a good point, um, and this is something I think that there's a little bit of a misnomer on as well. Our maximum security prisons and our medium security prisons are both um, very similar when it comes to infrastructure, and when it comes to both have large um, fences or walls surrounding them with barbed wire. Um, there are gun towers uh, spaced out throughout. Uh, there, there are weapons on site. There, I mean, really, it's a very medium and minimum or synonymous with one another when it comes to security level um, infrastructure-wise. Where the difference applies is the movement within the institution. And, right. for example, you have a little more movement in a, as a medium security prisoner than you would as a, a maximum. And there are more resources such as programming available and those sort of things. That's the biggest distinction is, is right there. Right. Between, so, so in other words, between maximum and medium, there is, there is, there, there's, there, there's still prisons, right? You, there's still, you feel like oh. you're inside four walls as opposed to uh, – because a lot has been made about, about this difference, and I think a lot of people are trying to figure out the classification system right. now and looking at it and thinking – you know, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, if you cover these cases over time, you know that many people serving life sentences end up at medium security or minimum, minimum not always, but medium security facilities at some point in at their long point. sentencing. Yeah. And 29 years in is actually one of the longest I've ever heard of. But again, understandably, um, the part of the part of the recipe here is to lower security levels, which initially, which eventually leads to, you know, looking at parole hearings and those sort of things. Uh, on the West Coast, for example, you have Williamshead and you have Ferndale, but um, right. you also have institutions like Mountain and Mission, which are medium. 
um, can't do the max, but they are very similar when it comes to the infrastructure itself. And when you look at this, I mean, I read the legislation. I understand what the Correctional Service of Canada has done at this juncture, having 29 years in. It's clear to me that he's probably had no institutional charges for X amount of time, has done whatever it takes, because over time, a custody rating scale will lower um, the longer you're in, the, the, uh, the longer you go without any institutional issues, the more you know, things that you accomplish, etc. That happens organically, basically. So he's probably hit the numbers on the custody rating scale that would qualify him for a medium. But again, this is an instance where I don't see ever being support for a release, nor do I think it would be safe at any point for, for this person to be released. Um, Lee, when you, l- you look at why this might have been done, I think people are scratching their heads. And you mentioned it earlier that he's been in jail for 29 years. Uh, mm-hmm. Clearly, the, over time, his his classification would begin to change. There was a lot of talk about his, but this being done for protection as well. Is that does that ring true at all? That somehow he was under threat at the other spot? It it wouldn't surprise me. So it's something that I noted at the front end when you were speaking, Ben, uh, was filling in a lot of the blanks about who Paul Bernardo is. And that's, I think, because you're aware that uh, a, lot, a lot of your audience was, was not alive, let's say, when his crimes uh, were talking 30 years ago, right? So mm-hmm. there's that part of it. When it comes to Millhaven, it's a very serious maximum security penitentiary, but they do have what's called the... Um, uh, regional treatment center and I, I can speak to back in the days when I was in and out of prison and this is in the early 90s or throughout the 90s he was held in Kingston Penitentiary in a very isolated area taken to yard by himself cell by himself but it happened to be below a range where guys that had come in on parole violations were and they were throwing out cups of urine onto them, uh, you know, things that... And so there's always been a real protection factor when it comes to this guy. Uh, and I'm surprised, actually, at the transfer, believing Lamakaza would probably be uh, more difficult to provide safety uh, from CSC uh, than Millhaven, because Millhaven is far more secure, which allows them the mechanisms to keep them isolated. Right. So I, I really don't, you know, Lamakaza is a very strange institution. Um, that yeah, tell me was, about it. I don't know, I don't know about it. I don't, don't know much well, about it. So in the early 1960s, the site was a military base. And in 1970, they deserted the base. And it became a college Manitou. So it, it transformed from a military base to a college, uh, which was, oh, pardon me, it was a school for Indigenous students. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became a prison facility in 1977. It's got a lower count than most medium security prisons. It's 240 uh, is what it holds. And I, I, part of it is maybe the dated part of this offense and the fact that many young inmates may no longer be all that familiar with Paul Bernardo. It could be part of the dynamic part of it. Um, I don't know, but uh, I would think I, it doesn't stand the test for me when I hear that. Yeah, so I mean, I mean it's, a, 
it's yeah, it's a really puzzling decision. I think I mean, I wonder, again, I, I think you pointed this out at the beginning, I don't think politicians should be meddling in these decisions uh, universally, as a rule, because it becomes very easy for right. people to pinpoint right. and target one person. Of course, you can also at the same time think that that Paul Bernardo really deserves to be in a maximum security prison for the rest of right. his days. Maybe that might seem unfair by the way the system is structured. But I think uh, Canadians would feel that way. Do you think this could be reversed? I mean, you see these things happen. Do prisoners get moved around uh, if they don't it, do anything wrong? It can wrong be themselves? reversed. So when I reference the legislation and the scales that are applied, and if you come out as a medium security scorer, um, the Correctional Service of Canada always has the ability to override a score, a static score that comes out and shows, oh, you're medium now. Well, at that point, I'm sure for many years, they've already, they've likely already overrode his score to keep him in maximum. So they have the tools available to override, meaning to make that transfer null and void and go back to max. It is there. It's, it's within the legislation. The legislation is very clear. As you say, it's not designed to be retributive by nature. Um, and it's, it's, you know, rehabilitative in nature by design, supposed to be. Um, but they do have the ability to override the, uh, the scoring in this. And I, I would not be surprised if he was uh, put back in a maximum, the court of public opinion. And again, he is not like most other people that are inside. It, it was a real point for inmates that were in during the years that I was in to absolutely not want to be associated with this person uh, in any way. I mean, I was in for stealing. I was, I, well, I'm not saying what I did was right or I'm proud of it, but right. there's no way that I wanted to be painted on the same brush as, as somebody like this. And I see this person as broken and not fixable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Lee Chappelle, thanks so much for your unique perspective on this. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Ben. Have a good night, sir. You may have seen some images today from right across uh, East, well, Eastern Canada, some of Canada's biggest cities, Ottawa, Toronto, Montreal, and then south of the border, New York, to top it all off, um, where there has just been incredible amounts of wildfire smoke in the air there. Now, of course, we, we know, understand, I've been talking uh, for quite a while now about the severity of the wildfires burning in several parts of Canada. Right now, of course, northern Ontario, northern Quebec is still very bad. There are still fires burning in Alberta. There are still fires burning uh, down east in, in Nova Scotia, where there's been a lot of destruction we've talked about of late. Uh, but where a lot of people, where the majority of people are feeling the impacts of this today is in the air they breathe. Ottawa's air quality was so bad that it cracked through a, the top of a risk scale this morning. Uh, Environment Canada gave it a 10 plus on their air quality health index this morning, which is the highest possible uh, and the highest, of course, amongst Canadian cities. It wasn't that much better in Toronto, Montreal and Quebec City, all registering around seven today. So the air is bad. You know it if you breathe it. Meantime, millions of people in the eastern U.S. also face those unhealthy air quality conditions as smoke from wildfires uh, sort of drifts over much of that part of the country. And in New York State, now this is another, I don't want to confuse you with all these air quality measurements, uh, but there's another one called IQ Air, which is a Swiss air monitoring company. They don't do every city, they do really major cities. So today they had New York at number one for worst air quality in the world at 193, above places like Delhi and Dhaka. And Toronto was at number five at 156. This is what Fox Weather, which 
I, I can guarantee you, rarely says the word Ottawa. This is what Fox Weather in New York had to say about the situation today. More than 9 million acres have burned across Canada already. The view here in Ottawa, terrible, absolutely awful. Thick smoke blotting out the sun, turning the sky here orange. Now, some of that same smoke is caught up in the atmosphere, and the weather is pushing it in the direction of places like New York City right here. Live view. Hard to see Lady Liberty out there in the Hudson Bay because of the tiny particles that are really reducing the visibility and choking out New Yorkers today with poor air quality. There you have it. Fox weather today. Blame Canada, the old South Park series said, right? Michael Brower is with us. He's a professor in the School of Population and Public Health at the University of British Columbia. Michael, thank you. Sure. Well, we, we knew we were going to be talking. I mean, it's been a bad wildfire season and with it comes that smoke. But I think uh, just for even for the casual observer, we're seeing something that I don't think we feel like we've seen before, which is such a widespread amount of smoke drifting into so many places all at the same time. Yeah, it's a little bit unusual, although we have seen this kind of thing before where fires in northern Quebec have impacted all the way down the, the eastern seaboard of the U.S., down to Washington, D.C. Um, what is a little bit uh, unusual is really like half of the continent now uh, is, is under smoke. And um, we have the fires in, in the east. We also have fires in Alberta. Uh, at the same time. And, and yeah, a lot of people are under smoke these days. And one thing I found interesting, of course, is that we kind of know it. I mean, I, I'm out here on the West Coast as well. So when we've, we've had very smoky days in the past while, in the past, not this year as much, but in years past, is that um, unless it's really bad, people tend to go out and have sort of go about their daily business. Um, but that's a bit of a misnomer. It's not just when you can't see. I mean, the smoke's in the air and can do some damage no matter what. Sure. Um, the the particles that we're most concerned with uh, inhaling, they're they're individually they're invisible, uh, and, and it's just when we get such a high level of these that that it decreases visibility. And when we have a, a bad uh, event like this, or people take notice, um, often we do get sort of clearing. So one, once a frontal system will come through, it will will clear out the smoke. Smoke is really very fickle in terms of the wind direction. So we're talking um, sometimes the smoke will drift thousands of kilometers from, from the source. Really depends on, on uh, the wind direction. Um, but um, we're starting to see a situation in Canada where pretty much everybody is going to experience smoke at some point uh, during the summer. Right. Just, I guess just the sheer amount of fire and the way, as you mentioned, how just how fickle the winds are. If anything, we've seen maybe a little bit less in BC than would be expected given, given the circumstances. How dangerous is it? And how, how, how much is, because we're reading already this week about maybe places like Ottawa or Toronto having bad smoke all week long. How dangerous is it? And, and how long is that prolonged? How much difference does that prolonged exposure make? So really, um, you know, it's sort of common sense. The longer this goes on, um, the, the worse it is. We know even very short-term events, so within actually a couple hours, um, people, especially people with pre-existing conditions, whether that's a heart disease, lung disease, diabetes, uh, they're going to be affected. Not everybody, but um, some people with these pre-existing conditions. Um, and as the smoke prolongs, then we start to see it is taking a toll on sort of a wider segment of the population. 
We get very concerned um, with uh, women who are pregnant. We know that the smoke um, exposure can lead to uh, babies that are born at lower birth weight, more likely the babies will be born prematurely. And we're even starting to see some evidence that um, that shows up also in, in the health, actually, of their infant after they're born. Um, so they may be more likely to develop uh, infections. So there's something about the development um, that happens if they're exposed uh, in, in utero. Um, what we don't really know is um, what's unfortunately becoming common is that people being exposed not just once over summer, but multiple times over summer and then the following summer. So actually more of a regular situation. And that's what's starting to get us concerned because this is becoming a um, more of a normal phenomenon. Right. I mean, I, I lived in Beijing for a while at a time where the air there was also sort of off the charts bad. And what I was always puzzling about it, and I'm not sure if this is the same situation here, is that it's not just the, it, I mean, it mixes with other stuff, right? So in Beijing, there was, it was a toxic soup, the air. Um, but when you look at what's happening, the haze that's sort of hovering over Toronto right now, or Ottawa, or New York City, for that matter, it's not just fire. It's not just you know, fire, it's not just smoke. There's other stuff mixed in there that, in, that sort of exacerbate the issue. Yeah, certainly um, depending on the weather conditions, if we, get, if we get smoke sort of settling and stagnant air, that's going to mix with all the, the local sources of pollution, traffic pollution, um, any industrial sources. Also, the smoke itself uh, isn't, isn't constant. Actually, as the longer it sits in the atmosphere, it, it cooks in the air so um and we're starting to see some evidence that sort of the longer it stays in the air um there's changes in in its chemical composition and perhaps changes in in its toxicity um so all of this is, is sort of very very dynamic fortunately uh, as i mentioned most of the time these um episodes from wildfire smoke they last for about a week to 10 days and then we do get a frontal system that that will clear them out and at least give people some some relief, unfortunately, until the next one comes. Right. And, and you say that. I mean, we are having to get you. It feels like we're certainly getting a lot more uh, wildfire smoke every year, or at least more regular annual wildfire smoke in most in most places compared to even, say, a few decades ago. Yeah, a- absolutely. We, we see um, more fires. Uh, many of these fires are, are larger. They're more severe. They're harder to suppress. So one of the fires burning now in northern BC is one of the largest ever, um, sort of in, in since we started recording fires. The other thing that is happening is that fire season is lengthening. So we used to certainly in the West we used to think very carefully about July and August. Now certainly June, uh, sometimes May, and even into April. And last year we had smoke episodes in Vancouver in October. So this right. is now expanding from a two months to you know maybe maybe five to six months. Michael, what, how best to prepare oneself? I suppose information is power. You should know what uh, what the what the AQI is. It's not something Canadians are too used to checking out. I remember when I lived abroad, we used to check it out all the time, though. Yeah, so we have the AQHI, which is the Air Quality Health Index, uh, which Environment Canada and Health Canada put out, um, and that will tell you. Um, both what the levels are, but also give advice. And it gives advice for um, both uh, people who are, are generally healthy and people that have pre-existing conditions. Um, we also have uh, smoke forecasts, 
that um, will give up to 72 hours in advance sort of forecast about where smoke is likely to go. Um, so that's also something that people can check out. And um, a lot of the, the, the preparation really has to happen um, before the fire season. So we want people, especially people with pre-existing heart, lung disease, diabetes, make sure their disease is well managed. Um, and so that means having enough medication on hand, really trying to have a check um, with your healthcare provider, just to make sure that everything is is sort of as good as it can be, so that you're more resilient when a smoke episode like this hits. Um, the other thing that people could think about would be uh, having an air cleaner, um, so a HEPA filter air cleaner. Um, these are not that expensive, and they are. There's also do-it-yourself um, ones that you can you can build. Um, these really do a great job at reducing the levels of smoke um, indoors. So they can reduce levels by about 70%, give people some protection. And we also see many communities now, certainly in, in BC, are establishing um, clean air shelters. So these are places just like cooling centers uh, that right. individuals can go to to get some relief. You know, because I think traditionally we've talked about wildfire smoke as being a bit of an annoyance uh, or, or at least a novelty at times. And it feels like just listening to you tonight that, that we don't we've shifted that conversation. We don't really talk about it as an annoyance. We talk about it as a threat uh, like we should. Yeah, definitely. Um, the, the impacts are serious. So we know that, that people die um, as a result of being exposure, uh, exposure during these episodes. Um, we know that. We'll, we'll definitely see increases in emergency room visits and hospitalizations. Um, we, as I mentioned before, we see the impacts on, on pregnancy. And um, so the, the range of impacts are, are quite broad, affects a, a large segment of the population. And um, unfortunately, this is also something that Canadians and, in fact, people all over the world are going to have to get used to. Um, we know that much of this is driven by um, a warmer climate, and we're looking at this kind of situation for the next 50 years, if not longer. And unfortunately, it's probably going to get worse. This is not um, as bad as it's going to get. Now, it doesn't mean it's going to be like this every day, everywhere. Um, we can't predict exactly when and where, but in general, the frequency of these kinds of events is, is very likely to increase in the future. Right. Michael Brower, thank you so much. My pleasure. Today, you don't think of a Tuesday in early June as being the kind of day that rocks the golf world, but that's exactly what happened today when news began to emerge um, that what had been a, you know, a year-long pitch battle between the PGA Tour and Saudi Arabia's Live Golf, that, this big venture they launched about a year ago, had all of a sudden, not only did it end, that they were in fact going to collaborate. It went from sort of from fight to, to a relationship. And people were stunned because these two, these two organizations had been really battling for quite a long time, for the past year or so. Um, they've agreed to this, the PGA Tour and the European Tour have agreed to a merger with Saudi Arabia's golf interests to create an operation to unify professional golf around the world. Now, Jay Monahan, who's the PGA Tour commissioner uh, over time, had, had some, said some really awful stuff about, about his rival. Uh, today, not so much. He explained the decision and how it came together over a mere seven weeks. In terms of how did we get to this point and how did we go from 
you know, a, a, a confrontation to now being partners. We just realized that uh, we were better off together uh, than we were fighting or apart. Fact of the matter is that this was a shock to a lot of people because we were not in a position to share or explain as we normally would. And that was really a result of the commitment we had made to uh, maintaining confidentiality uh, through the end. That's PGA Tour Commissioner Jay Monahan. As part of the deal, the sides are dropping all lawsuits involving Live Golf immediately. From the commercial side, the governor of Saudi Arabia's Sovereign Wealth Fund joins the PGA Tour Board of Directors and will lead new business ventures as chairman, though the PGA Tour will still have a majority stake. Now, again, news of the deal came as a huge surprise to many watchers of those lawsuits. Um, and it came out a year after Live Golf began. And Jay Monahan, back at the time, he was at the Canadian Open, I think, um, and said that any player who joined Live or was thinking about it, quote, have you ever had to apologize for being a member of the PGA Tour? There was no love lost, and now there is a whole lot of love going on. Joining me now with more on this to explain is Mark Strong. He's executive executive director of the PGA of British Columbia, not affiliated with the American PGA, by the way. My producer wanted to make sure to write that down. Mark, thanks so much. What a day. Yeah, no kidding. That um, woke up this morning and saw a bunch of stuff on the phone, and that was not, uh, well, I was actually driving into work, and that was not uh, at all something I think most of us expected. So for listeners to understand a bit about how this began, I always sort of compared it to like the WHA, but, but with different money money at hand, where you sort of have this breakaway league that comes in and tries to shake things up. And of course, you know, with Saudi Arabian money, there was an awful lot of money behind Live. But how was it doing in this first year? What had happened since this other sort of rogue golf organization had launched? Well, it had, it had made waves, uh, definitely. You know, the, a few interesting things that it had done is introduced new formats. Um, and it does sound like the PJ Tour or the new entity, whatever that's going to end up being called, uh, is going to try uh, a team format of, of some kind at, at some point at least. Um, you know, they were doing different uh, visuals on their telecasts and, and things like that. I don't think they, they did a fantastic job with it and got a ton of eyeballs on it, but they, they definitely got the players. And, um, you know, that's, that's the main talent and the main thing. And um, so they, they definitely grabbed a, a big part of the, the golf landscape. But this, uh, as you, you know, did a great job explaining, there's been this underlayer, uh, definitely for the last year and almost for two years, uh, about what exactly was going to happen with everything from world golf ranking points to um, players and majors and things like that. So um, we don't have a lot more answers, but uh, certainly an interesting development today. It it is, and of course, for listeners to understand, uh, Liv had, had had lured away some of golf's, but not many, but a few of their biggest names with promises of huge paydays. Names like Brooks Kepka and Phil Mickelson, I suppose, would be amongst the big ones. Uh, but they really sort of upended the the, the pay structure of, of golf as well, didn't they? They did. I mean, with this guaranteed money up front, and uh, but but very similar to kind of the announcement today. Not a lot of detail, uh, kind of in behind, and then you know we never really learned about exactly how those player contracts were structured and, um, you know, how it works out. There's different rumors about it, you know, coming out of their initial signing bonuses and things like that. So, so much to say, we don't exactly know how a lot of stuff's going to work uh, going forward. Um, so that, that they'll definitely be interesting to, to stay tuned and see. 
Yeah. And so, so just, and again, at a, at, up until even, you know, a week ago, the last major tournament, I think it was the, was it the PGA championship they're playing? Even then, yeah. I mean, that was really what was being talked about is because uh, a, a live player won, um, th- that there was this incredible animosity between these two groups. So the idea that somehow they would, they had been behind the scenes negotiating some sort of union, um, was I mean, it just took everyone off guard. I mean, even members of the PGA, players on the PGA Tour had no idea. That must have come as a surprise to you as well from the outside? Uh, it sounds like seven weeks is how long they've been they've been in talks or, or you know, actively negotiating, I guess. But I think at all levels, um, um, uh, it sounds like Greg Norman wasn't, you know, wasn't the loop on his end for, for live golf. And certainly, um, you know, some of the prominent players, even on the, the players' policy or advisory board, uh, like Rory McIlroy, you know, were not in the loop. So, um I do think there's going to be a lot of questions about not just exactly how this all worked, but but you know who was involved and kind of how it all came about uh, will be uh, will be part of what the public wants to know. Yeah, when you look at what was going on, I mean, I, I suppose one of the issues here is the competition always hurts eventually, right? That that they're fighting over the same thing, and of course, live and and it's and you know the Saudi investment fund have very very deep pockets. So this right. this might have looked like. I mean, what's your perception about why this would come together now so quickly too, considering what was going on? I guess they both felt like it was uh, that fighting was a lose lose, not necessarily that this is, this is a win win. I think that's the the gist of it. Is uh, they were both looking at potentially lengthy legal battles. Both have relatively deep pockets, so um, you know you could certainly end up in a, in a lose lose situation. I, I do think Live Golf was feeling a lot of pressure from its players in that they hadn't been able to secure World Golf ranking points. So sooner or later they were going to start to lose eligibility for majors and other events, and that would have right. been definitely a, a point of contention on their end. And on the PJ's tour end, they were you know, they'd lost some major players, and um, that's not exactly what they're used to. Uh, you know, they're used to dealing with. So I'm sure there was um, some of that was motivation on their end. Right. And we still don't know what this is going to look like in practice, like exactly what this new entity is. I mean, I think we have some idea of who's going to be there, but we don't exactly know what this is going to look like. I mean, how, how could, how much realistically could, could sort of what you see every few weeks on the TV change? Uh, I mean, yeah, we we know very little. Um, it kind of makes me think they maybe weren't quite ready for for this announcement. I mean, they haven't even named the, the new entity yet, so maybe they are, uh, you know, they, they had some issue and they were they were trying to get out of the head of it a little bit. So, um, but I mean, you know, very likely, uh, it, it, you know, the golf product should be fantastic uh, itself, and that we've got you know the, the best three tours uh, in the world all competing now, kind of under the same umbrella, perhaps in a, on a more regular basis. But um, just given the nature of it all, I don't think we can we can pretend to know at all what it's going to look like in terms of schedule or or formats or, or things like that. And that strikes me as odd for for the PGA, which which tends to be an organization sort of steeped in tradition and very much a big fan of predictability, I guess. And that's from an outsider staring in. I'm sure that's part of the the the, um, the shock and surprise is because that that uh, is exactly how the you know the PGA Tour is perceived, fairly predictable, um, you know, m- much more vanilla, plain, slow moving, rather than um, you know taking lots of risks and chances. So. Um, you know, uncharacteristic, I think is certainly a fair way to uh, to describe it. Right. And were you surprised? I mean, I, I guess you would have paid attention to this over time, but were you surprised uh, today at what Jay Monahan had to say? Because he was certainly on, on, on record as having said some pretty unpleasant stuff about Saudi Arabia in the past. And here he is today sort of singing, not singing their praises necessarily, but sort of explaining how this came together. I think he said the only thing he could say, given what he had said uh, a year ago um, or, or, or another time. So, um, 
I mean, I think he was kind of leaning on the fact that there was, you know, other developments that the public wasn't aware of. But I, I, um, I'm not sure if that explanation is going to going to satisfy maybe not the public, but the the players who uh, you know do have a, a stake in the tour. Um, they're certainly going to be, uh, you know, looking for more answers still. I think. Mark, what we do know about the business arrangement is pretty interesting because for an organization that seemed uh, hell bent on sort of denigrating the Saudis, all of a sudden now they're essentially in bed with the Saudi government, with the Saudi regime and its money, um, including as right at the top of the organization. Is that going to be an easy sell? Do you think? Does anyone is anyone paying attention? I think people are from from public but uh from the players as well um again who, who do have a stake in the in the pga tour um uh, as an association so um i mean i do think how all this came about is, is going to be a question that gets asked a lot by you know by those players and um it certainly is kind of a, a strange and unusual arrangement um the, the term merger has been used a lot but it, it almost uh you know with an injection of money and and someone going to the top of leadership um seems a bit more like a takeover and uh i mean i think they the uh you know the the, the pif i believe it is called the the public investment fund um mm-hmm. certainly has deep pockets um so if they want to you know buy this out wholesale and uh, and operate it as a business they they may have the ability to do so yeah, I mean, Colin uh, Morikawa tweeted this morning. I love finding out about morning news on Twitter. Uh, Wesley Bryan, another, I feel betrayed and will not be able to trust anyone within the corporate structure of the PGA Tour for a very long time. So I, I, I guess the, I think one of the things that, that is not, that was being spoken about, this is sort of more of a golf story, was that those players that stuck with the PGA for a myriad of reasons, part of them, you know, were also sort of moral and money and, and not wanting to take Saudi money, um, will feel a bit betrayed today because they did stick their reputations on the line in a political issue here. It's become quite political at times. And now all of a sudden they turn around and with no warning, and they didn't know, um, they've sort of had the rug pulled out from underneath them. That's exactly what it looks like, yeah, you know, certainly from the outside. I'm sure well, it, it, it is what a lot of players have, have uh, voiced already. Um, and I mean that, that you have to look at that and think that's going to hurt the credibility of of those same PJ Tour officials in in making claims or announcements uh, in the future, um, which uh, is something they are going to have to they would have had to calculate that in in making this move, um, and uh, so hopefully they they feel it's worthwhile. Right. Uh, I mean, I guess it's hard from the outside to figure out why this would have happened, but but. You know, it feels like the PGA had more to lose here reputationally, perhaps not financially, but reputationally, the PGA had more to lose. So it's difficult to figure out. And again, you know, the, the as you were mentioning, the governor of Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund now joins the PGA Tour board of directors. They are going to be the principal sort of sponsor of this, the the sovereign wealth fund of, of Saudi Arabia. Uh, I think it's PIF. Uh, so you look at that and think, wow, that's, I mean, that's a big risk for the PGA to take, given some of the things before. I mean, what could have possibly driven them to that, I guess, is the big question tonight. Yeah, and uh, I mean, you know, for some people that will always suggest money talks, and ultimately that, that could be the, the reason, and, and maybe it's not any more complicated than that. Um, I do think there was some unpleasantness ahead with uh, legal battles and discovery and what can happen there on uh, on both sides. Um, and so perhaps it was just... Um, they viewed they viewed it as a as a lose lose, and if there was a an off ramp, so to speak, where they um, uh, you know could could feel like they came out ahead, um, perhaps that was uh, the direction they went. 
One of the things that came up a lot when Liv was first created was this idea that the PGA structure itself, and, and you know, this this the American PGA Tour was also in its own way flawed, and it was time for some change. And maybe the live, uh, the way the live was back, the, where the money was coming from, what it was trying to do was probably not necessarily the, the solution. But this sort of betrayal of players feels like it could also spur some sort of player revolt and something that emerges from this that isn't what we isn't what it looks like now. And I think certainly that's something, you know, in chatting with other professionals uh, throughout the day, um, something that was thrown around by uh, by others and, you know, what, what's stopping uh, another offshoot, um, especially with, uh, you know, you overuse the phrase the devil's in the details uh, quite a bit. And without knowing what a lot of the live golf uh, contracts were like and how those agreements, um, uh, you know, were, are going to be enacted now that, you know, the league essentially is, is defunct and the same thing with the, the PJ tour and it's non-compete clauses. Um, it'll be interesting to see what other options are available for, for players because um, I guarantee you they're certainly looking into that right now. Yeah. So what was the scuttlebutt today, Mark, amongst everybody, those who are in the game, what was, what was kind of the, the main theme? Cause I know it's funny. Anytime you, I know anyone who's an avid golfer, this conversation came up all the time. <laughs> this one came up all the time. That's why we're talking about it tonight because it became something much bigger than a golf story. But in the golf world, it was a huge story for months and months on end. Yeah, for pretty much the last two years since it was kind of announced, and they did they did uh, announce a few big names right, right off the bat going over. You know, Phil Mickelson among them. Um, you could you could you could start any golf conversation with anyone by by talking about Liv and, and the PGA yeah. Tour. And uh, I don't think anyone expected this to happen at least right now. Um, you know, I, I think there were some predictions about maybe Liv Golf not being around forever, and it's uh, in the form that it was. I mean, they. Frankly, I don't think they had a revenue model, so um, I, I'm not sure how long they were they were willing to just kind of purely fund it. But um, the uh, I, I'd say the underlying or the most common reaction was was shock and, and surprise. And um, I mean, without a whole lot of detail uh, in terms of what it's going to look like and what it really means, um, I think everyone's waiting more than anything else on more developments and some more uh, more information. Um, I think no one knows what to expect right now. Right. And in the meantime, I mean, here we are still talking about it. Mark, thank you so much for your time tonight. Much appreciated. Real quickly, I'll say, you know, uh, today sure. is actually International Women's Golf Day. Um, oh, and also it? the RBC Canadian Open. Both of those stories seem to be, uh, you know, um, over, uh, uh, Mark, overshadowed let me give you by, another... uh, by Liz Golf. Let me give you another minute to tell me about that then. So please, yes, uh, we, we forgot because we're talking about something. Again, you're right, that Live Golf conversations dominated so much else. RBC Tour coming up, RBC uh, Championships. Yep, the RBC Canadian Open uh, is taking place um, out in Ontario and it has a, you know, another fantastic field of, of Canadians. Maybe this will be the year that uh, that we get a Canadian you know, winning it again. It's been since, uh, quite a while since Pat Fletcher. Um, and the PJBC just wrapped up International Women's Golf Week. Today is International Women's Golf Day, uh, celebrating prominent women professionals and their contributions to uh, to golf all across the country. Yeah, I read this incredible article about Rose Jung uh, over the weekend and then watched her win her first, the end, watched the highlights of her winning her first, her first, well, playing at her first professional tournament and winning. So that was, we have another big name to look out for out there, I think, too. And there's another huge golf story that uh, that has already been overshadowed. Yeah, she's, I think she broke some of Tiger's records at Stanford and is, uh, is well on her way. So that should be fun well, to watch. There you go. So it's about more than just living the PGA and all that, all that nonsense. <laughs> thanks. Yeah, Mark, thanks so much. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Ben. Before this surprise move made by a Saudi-backed organization today, over the weekend, there was another one when at uh, the big OPEC plus meetings, uh, it was announced that uh, the Saudi Saudis would cut 
production um, by a huge amount, one of the biggest cuts we've seen in years to bring its output down to 9 million uh, barrels per day. The bench, I believe, the cut was about a, a million barrels per day. That was a big, huge cut. And they did so unilaterally, which is not what they normally do. I mean, often the Saudis have been pretty conservative about stuff like this, and they were very aggressive about this one. Of course, uh, OPEC Plus is the organization of the petroleum exporting countries, such as the Saudis, Russia, and other smaller producers. Now, analysts had predicted that the group of producers would hold off on announcing any new supply cuts over the weekend, given a huge divergence of interests between Russia, whose oil exports are subject to a price cap imposed by the G7 over the war in Ukraine, and the Saudis, which have said, they've said they want oil to rise above $80 a barrel to balance the budget. Part of the budget, of course, is they've been spending all this money on other stuff, right? Investing it, some say, wasting it, you could argue in some say some say as well uh this had a the interesting thing about this though is it had a very brief impact so oil prices rose slightly on monday crude oil prices did and then proceeded to kind of drop back during the day and by today it was completely wiped out. They were back to where they were before the announcement. A lot of concerns about sluggish economic growth around the world uh, that could reduce energy demand as well sort of uh, outweighed the Saudis' pledge to deepen cuts. So what exactly is going on here? Because the unilateral 1 million barrel a day production cut is a surprise move from a country that traditionally, even though it likes to control the price of oil, has been pretty conservative about when it does it and how it does it. Why has that changed and what exactly is going on and why didn't this one work? Rory Johnston is with us. He's an industry analyst and founder of Commodity Context. Rory, thanks. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. So I saw this as sort of described as shock and awe by the Saudis at the OPEC meetings over the weekend. But what exactly is it that they've done and, and what impact is it having? I would kind of take issue with the shock and awe because I think shock and awe is supposed to be kind of definitive and clear. And what you generally saw from particularly the Saudi Arabian oil minister, but OPEC plus ministers generally, we want to be clear. We, the market's been misunderstanding us. But then what they actually delivered was quite confusing. The big headline takeaway, the thing that really matters is the fact that the Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia alone committed to a million barrel a day reduction in its production profile for the month of July, effective for just one month. And then, you know, the Saudi minister like literally said something along the lines of, you know, everyone, the market thinks they know what we're talking, what we're going to do, but they don't know. But the same, but like in the same breath, they were like, we want to provide certainty to the market. Like there's a clear conflict of what they're really doing because now Everyone, like, I'm going to be back next month being like, okay, what is Saudi Arabia going to be producing in August? Because no one knows right now by design. So I think this challenge is that I think that's part of the reason you you didn't see that large uh, a price reaction. You saw basically a $2 bump on Monday morning coming out of the meetings. And by the end of the day, that had basically completely reversed itself. Flat performance on a 1 million barrel a day cut from Saudi Arabia can't be what the Saudis were hoping for. Right, their ability... I mean, they would have thought going in announcing this that there would be some sort of significant and lasting bump to the price. I think even consumers see that headline think, uh-oh. And yet here we are today. I was reading all day long that it sort of it dissolved very quickly, very quickly. Uh, yeah, entirely. And I mean, in and the, the surprise cut we got at the beginning of April also kind of faded away pretty quickly. But we got a bigger bump, more like six, seven bucks a barrel out of that one, uh, you know, that following Monday. And that was a real true surprise. No one really knew that was coming. And that was, again, by design. 
So we got six or seven bucks out of that, but it would mostly reverse itself within two or three weeks. This, it was the same thing, but a smaller bump and an even quicker kind of reversal. So the market just isn't, at least yet, internalizing any of these fundamentals. And and I've said a, a couple of places that like, I'm not normally someone who says like the market price is wrong, you know, it should be more bullish than this or whatever. But I actually do think that like generally the outlook is for much tighter markets in the second half of the year already before this cut. The assumption should be at this, at least at this stage, the Saudi cut is going to last longer than just July. It feels like a lot of fanfare for literally just one month. So now if you combine a longer million barrel a day cut from Saudi Arabia and you have kind of already tight markets, this needs to feed through to price eventually. If we do get those tight markets, if we do get inventory pulldowns, that is eventually going to break this kind of macro collar that's been tugging crude around because for most of the past half year, essentially, crude really hasn't traded on fundamental factors. It's been trading on, and I should say oil fundamental factors. It's been trading on the US debt ceiling debate. It's been trading on the Silicon Valley bank crisis. This kind of broader market issues rather than crude specific because the the issue and the, the main concern of the market has been on the demand side and it's been recessionary concerns with rising interest rates and everything else. So that's been the real focus of the market. And I think that my hope, because as an oil analyst, I focus on the oil stuff, and kind of, I think the Saudi hope, because they want higher prices, is that eventually large enough deficits in the market are going to force the market and force the price to kind of re-recognize these fundamental realities. Yeah, because, I mean, for consumers out there, and most people will be looking at this from a, from a consumer lens, the idea when you see something like the Saudis announce, quite, quite publicly announce a, quite a significant cut, that you're going to feel it at the pump instantly. And yet, as you point out, the price of crude hasn't really been following. I mean, if you're not invested in this industry, the price of crude hasn't been doing the things we used to think that it would do if you were just a casual observer of it. That's exactly right. I mean, it's, it's been trading off all these other factors. And the other thing I want to focus on just coming out of this meeting was, again, how strange it was that Saudi Arabia cut alone. Because while there have been certain punctuated moments, like in early COVID, where the Saudis did kind of do things by themselves, it's not normally part of their general kind of MO and for good reason, like 40 years ago and, and for 40 years, essentially Saudi Arabian policy has been not to unilaterally manage the oil market because 40 years ago in the mid eighties, you know, there was a lot of pressure on the oil market. They cut unilaterally. And at one point by the summer of uh, 1985, the Saudi Arabia itself was producing less than just the British portion of the North Sea because they had cut down to the bones so, so, so much. And for them, that was the last straw. And then they basically opened the floodgates flooded the market and pushed out all of these higher cost producers. And that's essentially how we got the bear market, the kind of oil bust of the kind of second half of the 1980s into the 1990s, which as many kind of Canadian observers will recall was quite a hard time on Canada as well. Right. When, when we think, and again, the, the Saudis have always been about stability. They've been sort of the, the they've been the rudder, right? A little bit, the, the keep say, keep smooth sailing and all this. And, and, and it's interesting because we've been talking about obviously about sports and the Saudi economy and how the <laughs> Saudis have been approaching this all differently. And this sort of, um, they weren't so concerned about the short game in the past. Now all of a sudden, it looks like they are trying to do things to push the price up to a place where they feel more comfortable. Normally, they wouldn't have in the past. 
That's exactly right. So historically, the fun, I mean, I think a lot of people would think that Saudi Arabia always wants the highest possible price of oil because that just makes sense rationally. But historically, they've actually wanted a reasonably moderate price. Within OPEC, they have some of the largest reserves and some of the cheapest production costs. They expect to be producing oil for decades to come and serving kind of consumption of oil, you know, like to the last barrels. They expect to be there to the very, very end of the industry. So they want that end to be as far out as possible. So they've always wanted to be, you know, relative price doves within the context of OPEC, whereas smaller kind of more cash-strapped producers, examples like Libya, have been more kind of bullish on the price or more hawkish on the price, I should say. But what's changed more recently, and, and, and we've actually seen a very marked change in overall Saudi economic policy, with, you know, coming alongside the rise of Mohammed bin Salman, MBS, and kind of his you know, massive sea change in uh, the economic structure of Saudi Arabia. And one of the biggest kind of high profile aspects of this has been these massive, you know, what he like these giga projects, hundreds of billions of dollar projects. There's you know, building a brand new city called Neom. They're building a massive glass structure for tourists in the desert. They have embarked on this very interesting and very expensive brand of sports diplomacy, but, you know, paying hundreds of millions of dollars for you know, soccer and football players. Uh, and I, you know, announced this morning was the merger of Live and the PGA Tour. Uh, so, you know, kind of creating this golf megastructure, that's all very expensive. And I think that helps kind of provide context for why the Saudis likely these days are slightly more sensitive than they were historically to the short-term price of oil because they need the cash coming in the door. I love the idea that, you know, the reason why they made that announcement at, uh, at OPEC Plus over the weekend was had to do with like Phil Mickelson and Ronaldo. You know, that would be. Yeah. <laughs> Rory, when you look at Canada and our oil patch, and, you know, I, I noticed that uh, there was a big cancellation of the, uh, of, uh, of a big Beidzunor project. It's Canadian as well. What does it mean when the Saudis behave like this for the rest of our, for the Canadian oil patch? Because clearly we're very sensitive to the pricing. Yeah, I mean, in one way, I think if you look at it from the vantage of Canadian industry, I think this kind of more assertive, more optimistic and bullish behavior from Saudi Arabia is a positive. You know, you have the world's largest effective swing producer actively attempting to manage these markets in your favor if you are producing crude oil in Canada. Uh, but I think as you as you just note, obviously, the the delay of the Bay du Nord investment is, was a massive blow to Newfoundland and Labrador. It was going to be it was essentially going to I wrote a piece calling it literally a sea change in in the offshore industry and how it was going to open up the whole new frontier and reverse kind of a decade of production declines and, and kind of contribute massively to uh, to the Newfoundland Labrador uh, fiscal balance as an economy. But I think, you know, if we look out, out west, the same thing is the same thing's happening there. You, you, you've seen kind of a, a renewed push for some kind of cost uh, containment job losses happening again. Um, I think one of the challenges is that when we're looking at the price of oil today, let's say we're at, you know, 70-ish dollars for, for oil, I think historically people would have thought that's a very high price or at least a good price. But the other thing that's happened over COVID is obviously uh, kind of generationally high inflation. So that eats away at the effective value of that same $70. And in many ways, the oil industry has seen uniquely high inflation given the bottlenecks that occurred in industrial systems during COVID. Seventy dollars just doesn't get you as far as it used to, but there, you know, it's not all par- it's not all bad news. I think we, you know, one of the things that's been t- discussed a lot recently is that current oil prices are well below the price that the Alberta government budgeted for in the Alberta government budget. There are two things that have actually moved in Canada's favor here, at least from the advantage of Canadian industry, and that is 
far narrower discounts or differentials for Canadian crude. That same Alberta budget was banking on between $19 and $20 a barrel. And today we're sitting at 12, which is obviously much better. So, I mean, and that kind of goes $1 to $1 basically back in our favor. The other thing that, that is, that has benefited us is a slightly lower than for the Canadian dollar. That said, all of those things on the reverse side are bad for Canadian consumers. Compared to this time last year, we're in nowhere near the same kind of crisis moment. I think the people that you know literally had their eyes water when they saw how high gas prices got, thankfully, unless something truly, truly careens off the side of this highway, uh, that's not going to be repeated because oil prices in you know are nearly half as high as they were last summer this time last year. Last summer, while the oil market was in crisis, the refining uh, market was even more historically kind of dislocated. You know, what we talk about in the industry are so-called crack spreads or refining margins, essentially the difference between the value of a barrel of gasoline and the value of a barrel of crude oil. Last summer, and, and, and that crack spread for gasoline is usually around kind of 20 bucks, let's say, give or take, 20 bucks a barrel. Last summer, it reached 60 or $70 a barrel. That's crazy high. Today, we're far better. We're still above normal. We're on 30 but, you know, when, when we were looking and seeing the price of oil last summer around 130, we were actually paying the equivalent of nearly $200 a barrel for gasoline. So thankfully, we're not going to see repeat there. Right. So we have a slightly unpredictable Saudi Arabia, but the rest of the system seems a little more back, back in line. Rory Johnston, as always, thank you. Thank you. We'll talk about something a little lighter because this is a. I had a few days off. My dad was in town ahead of Father's Day. We met up in Vancouver and hung out for uh, the basically a long weekend. Caught up, which was always great. Of course, we like many families that were separated um, and living quite far from each other during the pandemic. He's in Montreal. Uh, we didn't get a chance to see a lot of each other for quite a while, um, so it was always nice to hang out. And on my way back, a few things came up. On my way back, I was on the ferry. I took the ferry back home from uh, Swanson to Swartz Bay, so from Vancouver to Victoria. And today, of course, we found out that BC Ferries has cancelled the famous Pacific Buffet on that specific route. And it was a big deal at BC. Anyone who's ever been on that ferry may have enjoyed the buffet. Uh, I actually never got a chance to eat on that buffet because the, the lineup was always so long. By the time I got upstairs, I thought, oh, I don't want to, you know, it's actually not that long a ferry ride. It's about 90 minutes, right? So you thought, oh, well, I'll just eat when I get to town. And we used to always go somewhere to eat in Vancouver when we arrived. So, uh, but it was a big deal. We were talking about some of your favorite um, buffets to eat at, if they still exist. I mean, there are far fewer now than there used to be, of course. Um, and also during that ride, I listened to this podcast called uh, Science Quickly that's done by Scientific American. This one was on paleontology and it was called This Massive Scientific Discovery Sat Hidden in a Museum Drawer for Decades. And what a great headline. So I thought, oh, that sounds really interesting. I'll give that a listen. And it turns out it was all about this bird called Pelagornis sandersi. And this is not just any prehistoric bird. This is the biggest bird that anyone's ever found to have lived on our planet. How big, you ask? How big was it? Um, it had a wingspan of 24 feet, which is massive. It was like a big car. Um, it weighed about 1,900 pounds, which is 
very, very big. Um, and its eggs would have been about 150 times the size of a chicken egg, apparently. Now, there's a lot we don't know about this bird, and there's a lot we do know. And what we do know in some way is thanks to a whole number of people, but one of them in particular, his name is Daniel Sepka. He, it was a, he's the curator um, of science at the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut. And he's sort of the one who dug up this fossil. It had been found earlier um, uh, while they were excavating the airport in Charleston, South Carolina, and he found it. And then started looking into it and trying to figure out more about it. So he, in many ways, didn't discover this. And he's not the only expert on this. But he sure knows a lot about it. So I thought, who better to talk to tonight about this than Daniel Sapka, avian paleontologist and curator at the Bruce Museum in Greenwich, Connecticut. Daniel, thank you. Thanks, Ben. Thanks for having me. This is such a, we always like to talk about big things that existed once, right? But this is an absolutely massive creature that I don't feel like we talk about very often. Yeah, it's a wonderful bird. It's um, it's quite a mysterious animal. It's impressive. Um, it's extinct. There's a lot of mystery to it. So we're still um, trying to learn about it right now, um, you know, present day. Now, this the discovery of it that go, is quite an interesting story of it in of itself because it was excavated while building an airport, which sounds sounds perfect, actually. <laughs> it's almost like a bad joke, but um, the fossil was actually discovered when they were doing some expansions at the Charleston airport. And so someone um, who was digging there noticed these bones coming out of the ground. And luckily, you know, they didn't just plow right over them. <laughs> and uh, instead, they called the Charleston Museum. And so Al Sanders, he's um, a curator um, there. He's actually he passed away a couple of years ago, unfortunately. But um, he was curator there at the time. And he went out with a team and collected this bird and brought it back to the museum. So that, uh, thus the name, right? So it's Pelagornis sandersi, and that's the Sanders, right? <laughs> right? Is that, yeah, uh, is that right? Yeah, it was named in honor of El, yes. Yeah. So just how big is this thing? The wingspan was somewhere between 20 and 24 feet. And um, the uncertainty comes from the fact that we don't have any of the fossil feathers preserved. So we have to kind of guess how much um, soft tissue to add to the bony skeleton. But just to put that in context basically take a California condor and take a royal albatross and kind of glue them together. And you've still got a wingspan that's larger than both of those combined. And these things used to just roam the skies and off the West coast, off the coast of where you are more or less. They were quite prevalent along the Eastern coast of the United States for many millions of years. Um, There's a number of fossils of this family of animals in Charleston places like Lee Creek, which is in Virginia, there's actually bones of this family known from every continent, believe it or not. So it's not just the East Coast. They're in Antarctica, believe it or not. They're in Australia, New Zealand, um, they're in Morocco, they're on the West Coast, they're in South America. So they basically were everywhere for quite some time. And and they have some pretty interesting attributes too. Again, a lot of this comes down to sheer size, but they used their beak as an axe to kill prey was one thing that I had read, which is Sounds pretty terrifying. I don't know about using it as an axe. That sounds a little extreme, but um, the most amazing thing about these birds, other than their size, is they have what we call pseudo teeth. And so if you look in the beak, there are these projections. They're little sharp kind of cones of bone, and they look like teeth of like a reptile, for example, but they're not true teeth. They're not made of enamel and dentine. They don't sit in sockets. Uh, they probably were not replaced. They're actually projections of the jaw bones. And so they're the same material that makes up the mandible and the maxilla and the premaxilla. And these pelagornithids probably use them to help grasp their prey. And so I don't like the axe analogy because I think 
the, the bony, um, you know, the pseudo teeth were probably fairly delicate in terms of not being able to crush something. So they wouldn't be good for grinding. They'd be more for piercing soft bodied prey, things like fish or squids, for example. And so I, I think they were more um, used for grasping than used for, you know, hacking something to bits. <laughs> right. <laughs> that makes more sense. So they were sort of like big seabird. Is that what they ate to like sort of swoop down, pick things up and fly off? There's a lot of debate over that. So they were huge. They could probably eat a lot of different types of prey if they could catch them. But they were also, I believe, would have been pretty unwieldy once they landed. And so I don't think they'd, for example, dive under the water, which modern albatrosses can do. Um, They might even have trouble getting back up off the surface of the water if they were to land. And so there's a couple different hypotheses. They may have been plucking prey off the surface, things like, you know, flying squid or fish that are jumping out or animals that are just below the surface. I personally believe they may have been a little bit bullies in the bird colonies when they're coming ashore. So they may have predated other birds, young or eggs. So maybe, you know, raiding gold nests or something like that, even eating other birds whole. Uh, so we don't have a lot of good evidence because we don't have any Pelagornithids preserved with stomach contents yet, but there's a lot of possibilities um, when you get to that size. Yeah. I, and when you think about, about uh, I, I had not actually thought about the, the, being that size would have its issues as well when it came to kind of the things that we imagine birds doing these days, right? Which is fairly being able to slow down quite quickly and grab things and take off quite quickly. Something of that size, like a plane, would have had to take its time coming in and coming in and taking off. Right. They were very efficient gliders. So once they got up in the air, they used very little energy to travel long distances, but it may have been difficult for them to take off um, under certain conditions. So I think if you're in a high wind speed environment, they'd have no trouble at all if they have some elevation, perhaps. But if they're just standing on the ground in you know, completely still air, I don't think they could flap off the ground. The, the way their wings are built, there is not much ability to actually raise them above the horizontal so they're very good at holding them extended for gliding but they're not going to be able to flap like a you know a cardinal or a blue jay would this discovery was made about 10 years ago obviously you were involved with it as well having sort of found or found these uh, these fossils after they were put away after they had been discovered in in charleston um And at the time, I was reading an article, an interview that you gave back in 2014, but wanting to learn a lot more about why they would have gone extinct, for instance. How far along have you come in that in the last decade and trying to figure out more about this this great bird? All right. So there's um, the fossil itself was actually discovered in the 80s. So I was uh, probably in grade school when it was first found. Like myself, yes, indeed. Yeah, yeah, I had nothing to do with that. Um, Actually, a volunteer named James Malcolm is the person who who first identified the bones and, and, you know, led the museum to them. So... I think he was quite a young guy at the time as well. Um, I didn't get involved until like 2010. So by that point, it had been sitting in the museum for, you know, well on two decades. Um, and that was a really wonderful opportunity for me. I was just a postdoc at the time. So it was kind of early in my career. So getting the chance to look at <laughs> the largest flying bird of all time was really fortuitous, especially when it was discovered like 25 years before I looked at it. We have been trying to figure out more and more about how this animal lived, how it flew, what it ate, and also, as you said, why it went extinct. And that's a really tough question because it's not just one species, right? The Pelagornithidae includes many species. Some of them are, you know, quote unquote, small, um, which would still be about the size of an albatross. Many of them got very, very large, you know, 10 feet, 15 feet or more in wingspan. And like I said, they were everywhere. They were literally been discovered on every continent. So they First appeared in the fossil record about 60 million years ago. 
very briefly after the dinosaurs were wiped out by that asteroid at 66 million. And they go extinct roughly only like about 2 million years ago or so. So they, they almost made it. They just barely missed meeting us. And I'm sure if they did, we would have wiped them out. We probably would have collected their eggs or shot them for their feathers or something like that. But in this case, humans had nothing to do with the extinction. We were not yet, um, you know, out and about throughout the world. So we weren't encountering them, you know, with our weapons and our rats and, and all of right. that stuff. We bring islands. Um, so why did they doubt? I don't know. There's there's some changes in ocean current circulation patterns and perhaps wind patterns that are happening about this time. And you can kind of point to that, but at the same time, you know, they'd been through so many shifts in climate, so many shifts in ocean currents, continents breaking apart, the rise and fall of all these other groups of animals that it seems like this would not be enough to knock them off after they'd been around for, you know, what are we talking, 58, 59 million years. So I think it's really a mystery. Um, most likely it had something to do with them being so hyper-specialized. They're just so large they probably need a particular type of prey, conditions to take off, perhaps certain types of areas to nest in. And so I expect that being so large probably contributed to the demise in some way. But to me, it's still a mystery. Right. Even though they survived this incredible period of time, I didn't realize they had actually survived that long. It is it is a mystery. And and yet they still have, I mean, they do have relatives that are still around today. And I, I gather it's not necessarily the relatives one would imagine, given how big they were. Oh, you know what? That's another great question. We don't actually know what they're related to. <laughs> so, really? I thought we I thought we had some idea that they were sort of maybe ducks and sort of that kind of thing. That is one idea. And so, right. um, you know, when they were originally discovered, we didn't really know much about them at all. And people thought they were probably related to marine birds, maybe albatrosses or gannets or something like that. Some large soaring birds. Big things, yeah. Um, later on, um, scientists have done some work, uh, especially by looking at the skull, and there's features essentially of the way the jaw articulates with the palate and the and the skull that um, suggest they may be related to ducks and chickens, <laughs> which would be just kind of hilarious to have, you know, a 24-foot flying duck <laughs> darkening the skies overhead. And so that's one of the main hypotheses. There's also some scientists who think they could have been a really early branch of the bird um, evolutionary tree that kind of split off before most of the major groups evolved and then left no descendants today. So I think that's still a very open question. Yeah, I wouldn't really... You'd caution, right? Because some caution on that one? Yeah, we don't know. We don't know. And I think um, as we try to solve this problem, Pelagorna sandersi is probably not going to help us that much because it's already this very specialized species that's been around. You know, that lineage is split off from other birds at least 40 million years ago or so. So the secrets um, to their evolutionary relationships probably are best addressed by looking at some of those really old, smaller species um, that are around like 60 million years ago or so. Right. When, you, when I was reading about the eggs, I kept thinking of the Flintstones, of course, right? which, is, <laughs> which is ridiculous, but about 150 times the size of a chicken egg, right? That was like, wow, yeah, that's, so, that's so large. Like, we haven't actually, we don't know if you we don't have know, right? right? So that's a funny thing. There's never been an egg found in a nest or with an embryo, but there's actually very large bird eggs out on the Canary Islands. And um, originally they thought to be related to ostrich relatives because they're almost exactly the same size as ostrich eggs. Now that we know about these pelagornithids and how they were distributed globally, it probably makes a lot more sense that they come from one of these birds. And so my dream is that one day we'll, you know, CT scan one of those and find a baby inside. 
So 10 years later, still lots to learn about this, about this massive, this massive creature that once soared above us, the Pelagornis, Pelagornis Sandersi. Absolutely. Yeah, there, there's so many more questions to answer. And um, I think in 10 years, there'll still be more. So it's something that keeps me coming back. Daniel, thank you so much. Thank you, Ben. It's a pleasure. 